Beloved congregation of our Lord Jesus Christ, I kiss the wave that throws me up against the rock of ages. I kiss the wave that throws me up against the rock of ages. This is a quote attributed to Spurgeon, although I couldn't find it in his works. He says similar things. But the message is clear. Whoever came up with the saying that when there are hard things in life, when there are painful things, when there are afflictions, the Christian looks at them differently. If those hard things drive us to the Lord Jesus, drive us closer to Him, make us more dependent on Him, make us cling to Him all the more, then even those, those afflictions are hard and painful, we can be thankful for them. Because more important than living a life of comfort and ease is to live a life that is close to God and that clings to Christ. Now, there are lots of waves which buffet us, which throw themselves against us, and the waves and turmoil that we experience in this life are the result of sin, always. For sure, they're the result of the original sin in Adam. As Adam and Eve sinned, they brought corruption and groaning and pain into the world, death. And as sons and daughters of Adam, we live in the world that we chose to live in as the human race. And so all of the painful things in life are the result, originally not from God's good design, but from man's sin. And then there are also the actual sins, not just our original sin in Adam, there are the actual sins. We do things that are not in line with God's word, and when we do things that are not in line with God's will, it hurts. Sooner or later, the hurt and the destruction become apparent. And even though there is forgiveness for sin, and God removes the guilt of sin, we often have to live until the the end of time, until the renewal of all things, we have to live with the consequences and the brokenness that our sins have brought about. Now, in Psalm 62, it's a psalm of David, and David is in a hard place. He's in a very difficult place. And if you scan back through the book of Psalms to Psalm 51... You remember that Psalm 51 is his confession of what he did. He committed sexual assault against Bathsheba. He murdered her husband Uriah. And even though there was forgiveness for that sin, there was also, together with it, God's fatherly discipline in helping David understand the consequences of that sin. And so God says to David, the sword shall not depart from your house. And so David had to live with a constant reminder that sin destroys, that sin brings death, that sin brings pain. And so as you scan from Psalm 51 going forward through the Psalter, you see a lot of Psalms working that out, a lot of Psalms in which David is hard-pressed by the enemies, not just distant ones, but often enemies that are very close to him, people that should be his friends. 
Now, in Psalm 62, it, perhaps we don't know, the Holy Spirit doesn't tell us exactly, but it is quite possible that this psalm is from a situation like the one in which David found himself with Absalom when he was fleeing from Jerusalem, when he had lost everything, when the army was with his son, his rebellious son, when his best advisor had gone over to the enemy and David, the king, is on the run and he is reduced to almost nothing and it seems that all is lost and that's perhaps why we see that pretty graphic language there in verse 3, a leaning wall, a tottering fence. His whole life is about to come crashing down. All it will take is one more little push. He's surrounded by injustice and hatred and abuse and threats and attacks and lies and hurt and betrayal from the people who say they are his friends but who want to destroy him. Oh, thank the Lord that we're not running for our lives in the wilderness. We're sitting in comfortable pews this morning in a climate-controlled environment. But we are assailed. doesn't matter how good or how hard our life is right now. We're all assailed. We have enemies, and those enemies are always attacking. The devil, the world, our own sinful flesh hate us and work 24-7 to destroy us. And so the Christian life is a battle against the forces of evil, against the forces of darkness. And the battleground is, first of all, in our soul, in our own human heart. That's where much of the battle plays itself out. And in this great battle, we cannot stand for a moment in our own strength. We are in ourselves leaning walls and tottering fences. So over and over, like David, we seek refuge in God. And if you have your Bible open, I'll go through the psalm verse by verse. It will help you track with the sermon if you have your Bible handy. So verse 1, for God alone. And there are, there's an interesting structure which is hard to translate into the English because that word alone is the attempt of the translators to, to draw our attention to it. The Hebrew word used a bunch of times in the psalm is the word ach. And it's kind of an exclamation. It means surely or only, or however, or nevertheless. So something's happening, something's going on, and, and ach, nevertheless, but surely only this. And so this, it's using kind of a contrast. And so as David sees his situation, he says, ach, for God my soul waits in silence. Now, you may be here this morning and you may be suffering a lot of waves of affliction just crashing down upon you, and you may be looking at this first verse and saying, wow, I, I guess I'm not a very good Christian because I'm not suffering in silence. I'm, I'm crying out to God and I'm telling other people that I'm hurting. And Am I a bad person because of that? 
for God alone, my soul waits in silence. Am I supposed to just be quiet, say nothing, just take it? Well, brothers and sisters, that's why I read Psalm 39. Psalm 39 is also by David, and David did a lot of crying out. He he tried to keep quiet. He couldn't, so then he just poured out his soul to God, and, and it was only after pouring out his soul to God that he came to a second silence, and that second silence is a different one. The first silence is, is you just know you're trying not to react. You're trying to process things, and, and you can't hold it in. But the, but the second silence is the silence of humble submission to the sovereign will of God. David has gone through a whole range of emotions. He tried to keep quiet but he didn't manage. He, he cried out, but then he ended up in the second silence of quiet submission. And you, you saw that in Psalm 39 as we read it there in verse 9 of Psalm 39. He says, I am mute. This is the second silence. I do not open my mouth, for it is you who have done it. Brother and sister, that's where God wants us to get to when we're hurting, when life is difficult. There's all kinds of crying out, and that's okay. We can pour out our hearts to God. But in the end, as God's children, we need to come to that place where we say, Lord, I don't know what you're doing here. I don't know why this is happening. I don't know why it hurts so much and why it has to hurt so much, but I do know this, that you are God, that you are sovereign, that you are in control, that you are my Father, that you love me, that you direct every aspect of my life, even the hard and the the painful things, and so I will wait patiently. I will wait in humble submission. So the scripture instructs us to do over and over, humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so that at the proper time he may exalt you, casting all your anxieties on him, because he cares for you. It's important. We're not humbling ourselves. We're not waiting in silence on a God who is capricious and arbitrary and just kind of throws things at us because he enjoys making us hurt. But we're waiting in silence on a God who loves us, loves us so much that he actually made it possible for himself to come and to die for us in Jesus Christ. So this is quiet submission to God's providence. And then in verse 2, you see that word alone, that's that's the word ach again. So he's still responding to his painful situation and contrasting it. And he says, ach, nevertheless, he is my rock and my salvation, my fortress. I shall not be greatly shaken. I can be shaken, but not greatly. So David's being realistic. Yes, yes, it, it, it hurts. And, and yes, I don't know what to do often. I don't know how to respond. And I'm, I'm kind of battered by all these things. But, but I shall not be greatly shaken. I shall not be knocked over because I'm on a rock and I'm in a fortress. And so in that position, not in his own strength, but in the strength of God, as he's 
standing firm on that rock of who God is and what God does, as he's clinging for dear life to that rock of ages. From that position, he surveys those waves that have thrown him up against the rock. And he looks at those waves in verses 3 and 4. They are attacks, and they're too big, and they're too strong for him. He can't deal with them. God has certainly given him more than he can handle. He's a leaning wall. He's a tottering fence. All it takes is one more push, and everything will come crashing down. There are people, there are things that present themselves as being on his side, as being good for him. But really, they want to destroy him. And that, that's true of us too, isn't it? So many people, so many things who present themselves as being on our side and being good for us, but really they seek our destruction. There are enemies, there are false teachings, there are temptations, there are addictions. It's just sin in general comes at us from so many angles and tries to sell itself as a good idea. But what it really wants to do is kill us. And so in this great battle, verse 4, we have another ach. You see the word only there? Well, that's the Hebrew word ach. So there's, there's the contrast. On the one hand, I'm weak and about to just fall over into pieces, and there they are, ach, there they are. Nevertheless, despite my weakness, no mercy on their side. They plan to thrust me down from my high position. They take pleasure in falsehood. They bless with their mouths, but inwardly they curse. They plan to thrust him down from his high position. You know why Satan attacks you, brother and sister? It's because of who you are. Nobody tries to kidnap for ransom the child of a poor beggar because it's not really worth the effort, is it? But if there's a son or daughter of a great and mighty king, well, that might be worth capturing and kidnapping for ransom because they're, they have value. Why does Satan attack us? Well, let's use another analogy. When you have a pirate ship, children, if you have a pirate ship looking for someone to attack, and they see two ships, and the one ship is loaded with rotting fruit and vegetables, and the other ship is full of gold and silver. Which ship will the pirates attack? Well, we know which one, don't we? The one that has value. And so because of our high position, because you are a royal son of God, a royal daughter of God, that's why Satan expends his efforts on you. He doesn't waste time attacking people that are already walking in the darkness without Christ. He leaves them basically alone on the whole. And you see there at the end of verse 4, that little word in italics, Silla. A lot of scholarship being written about this, different ideas. But if you put all the ideas together, the basic concept of Silla is stop for a second. Reflect on what I just said. Think about it. And perhaps when the psalms were sung, then at the Salah moment, there would be a bit of a musical interlude where people were just meditating on the words before moving on to the next words of the psalm. 
And so there's the situation. The attacks, the waves crashing against him, and David clinging to that rock and that refuge, which is God. Now we move on to verse 5. You see the word alone there? That's the word ach. Nevertheless, nevertheless, for God, oh my soul. Now look at the difference here. Do you see the difference with verse 1? It's not exactly the same. Sounds the same. It's not the same. In verse 1, it was a statement, my soul waits. Here, it is a command. Soul, wait. He's telling. He's not just saying. He's telling. He's, he's commanding. It's an imperative. He's preaching to himself. You know, that's what we need to do as God's children. We need to take the gospel that we read, that we meditate upon, that we study, that we hear preached, and we need to take that gospel and those promises and those truths, and we need to preach them to our souls. When our souls are afflicted, when our souls are troubled, in turmoil, we're going to say, hey, soul, listen up. This is the truth of God. This is the word of God. This is what you need to do. We've got to preach to ourselves. Wait, oh my soul, in silence, for my hope is from him. And then verse 6, you see the word only? Yes, that's the word again. Ach, nevertheless, despite everything that's happening, he is my rock and my salvation, my fortress, and I shall not be shaken. Again, Similar words in these verses to the first verses of the psalm, but little changes, important changes. Because you remember what he said in verse 2, I shall not be greatly shaken. I might get pushed around a little bit and bumped and knocked over a little bit, but, but I will not be greatly shaken. And now David, considering who God is and what God does and the very character of God and his promises, he says, I shall not be shaken. When it all comes down to it, I shall not be shaken at all. Because I stand firm on that rock. And then he sums it all up in verse 7. On God rests my salvation and my glory. My mighty rock, my refuge is God. What is, what is David saying? He's saying this. My salvation, my happiness, my glory, my success. Do not rest, do not depend on me or my circumstances. They don't depend on what people think of me. They don't depend on what things I have done or haven't done. But my salvation and my glory rest on God. Now, that's quite the statement of faith. David's on the run. His own son is trying to kill him. The whole army has turned against him. The throne has fallen into the hands of the enemies. And David, as he works through this situation and thinks about it in the light of God's truth, comes to the conclusion that even though God has turned his entire life upside down and stripped him of almost everything he had and everyone, there is one thing that has not changed. Who he is to God. What David is confessing here is echoed in the first question and answer of the Heidelberg Catechism. David is saying, my only comfort in life and in death 
Good times and bad times. When I have everything, when I have nothing. My only comfort is that I belong, body and soul, to my God. That my life is built and that I stand firm on the unshakable foundation of who God is and who I am by God's grace. And no external circumstances can shake that, can change that, and can take that away. You know, brothers and sisters, that's where God wants us to come. And sometimes we don't see it, right? Life is hurting, life is painful, and all we see is the hurt, all we see is the pain, all we see are the problems. We say, Lord, fix it, make it better, make it go away. And the Lord says, nope, you haven't come to the conclusion yet. Here, I'll give you some more. And say, Lord, what are you doing? I, this hurts. I don't like it. Take it away. And the Lord says, my child, you have to come to the point where you give up, where you open up your hand and let go of everything that you think is important and realize that it's just me that I am all you need, that my love is better than life itself. That's where God wants us to get to. That's where David got to. And when he got to that point, he says, well, I got to share this and look at verse eight. He starts preaching. He's not preaching to himself anymore. He's preaching to the church. Trust in him at all times, O people, or we can translate, O congregation of the people. He's preaching to God's people here. And he's saying, look, I have come to understand that all the time, everyone has simply got to trust in God. That's, where it all comes, that's what it all comes down to. Just pour out your heart to him. It's safe to do that. He understands. And when you do that, when you look to him and him alone, then he holds you up. And he is a powerful refuge. He's a powerful rock of refuge. Whom do I have in heaven but you? And on earth there is no one in whom my heart takes pleasure, whom I desire. That's where God wants to bring us. And then Selah at the end of verse 8 says, well, think about that for a bit. Reflect on that. As we move on to verse 9, it was harder to get this in the translation, but verse 9 is the, the last time that we have the word ach. And David is now making a contrast between that life of simple faith and rest, quiet submission in God's providence, even in painful affliction. He's making a contrast between that confession of God's children, God's child, and God's people with the alternatives that present themselves to us. What are the things that present themselves to us as things that we need to look to to make us happy, to keep us safe, to be our refuge? Well, here he goes. Ah, nevertheless, here's the other side of things. Those of low estate are but a breath. Those of high estate are a delusion, and the balances, they go up. Now, we don't use balances, do we? Maybe if you're working in a chemistry lab, you might. But of course, it's a weighing scale, which I think some of us who have done high school chemistry would remember that. You have the scale and you put something on it, 
uh, on the one side and on the other side, and the heavier side will go down and the lighter side will go up. So something which is light, which isn't weigh anything, will go up. And so when the scripture says in the balances they go up, they're lighter than a breath. Well, if you have a weighing scale and you breathe on it, it's not going to register any weight. Breath is, for all intents and purposes, weightless. It's, and in the scripture, something which is light and, and weightless is the opposite of that which is worth something and valuable and heavy. So what is he saying? He's contrasting the trust in God as a refuge with people and things as our refuge. And that's what we tend to do as fallen human beings. We look to people and we look to things. We look to the creature rather than the creator. We seek salvation and we seek glory. We seek life and success in people and things. We define ourselves by position and influence and what people think of us and how many likes we have on social media, how many things we have accumulated, and how many numbers and digits there are on our financial statements. And David says, look, there's no foundation there at all. There's nothing to build your life on. That's just breath. That's this delusion. That's just a vapor. It's the vanity uh, that the book of Ecclesiastes speaks about over and over and over. If you seek your salvation and glory in those things which are like a vapor, which will be blown away and will disappear forever, well, you're going to be very, very sorely disappointed. How many people at the judgment day, when they see the Lord Jesus Christ come in all his glory, and they've been running after reputation and glory of man, and the things of this earth, and the riches and the comforts of this earth, and the pleasures of this life, how many people will not be struck with horror at what they have done? You know, there's a reason why sin is called foolishness, because it is. It's the height of foolishness. In Pilgrim's Progress, there's a scene in the House of Interpreter where Pilgrim, or it might be his wife, I can't remember right now, but one of them, they see this vision, they see this picture of a man who's stuck in this dark room and there's all muck and filth and dirty straw and on the floor, and, and this person is rummaging through it constantly looking for little twigs and little bits of straw and, and finding them valuable and gathering them together. And above the man, he, he only has to lift up his head. And he will see that above him there is an angel holding out a golden crown. And that's the way a lot of people live. Even sometimes people in the church. As we take so much pleasure in chasing after the things of this world, and we don't look up and see the unfading crown of glory that God holds out to us in Christ. Now, we get to verse 11. Once God has spoken, twice have I heard this. This is, this is the word of God. This is where David goes against all the vapor and the temporary things of people and things. 
David focuses on where the real solidity, the real power is. All flesh is like grass, all its glory like the flower of grass. The grass withers, the flower falls. But the word of the Lord remains forever. Now think about that. As we're in the storm, this turmoil of all kinds of things happening in time and space. And, and, and we know that a lot of these things, that all these things that are attacking us one day will be destroyed. Does it make sense to hold on to these things? Or does it make sense to hold on to something which will remain forever? And that is God and his word. God is our refuge and we know him in his word. Because in his word he reveals who he is and he reveals what he has done. Now David says once God has spoken because God's word is eternal. It does not return empty. It accomplishes that which he has purposed. It is rock solid. It is said and it is done. He speaks, he commands, and it comes into being. And on that rock-solid word of God, we can build our lives. So once he has spoken, twice have I heard this. And so David's saying, God speaks once, but I need to hear lots. And that's why we come to church every Sunday. We hear the same message every Sunday. It's the same message. I don't know if you've realized that yet, but I've been preaching the same message to you for four years. Exactly the same thing. And yet we need to hear it, don't we? Over and over and over, we need to hear who God is and what he has done for us in Jesus Christ. Because that is our hope, that is our refuge, that is our rock in which we build our lives. Because I'm weak. And I'm defenseless in the face of my enemies and temptation and affliction and suffering. I am weak. But he is strong and powerful. And I, in the face of the hatred of my enemies, the devil, the world, my own sinful nature, in the face of hate and betrayal, even of people close to me, close friends and family, I see in the revelation of God and the word of God, I see God show himself to me as a God of steadfast love, a God who is faithful. A God who is unchanging in his love. A God who is unconditional in his love. A God who loves me no matter how much I stumble and fall. No matter how much I'm aware of my own unworthiness. A God who loves me as he loves his own beloved son. That's how much he loves me. That's how much he loves you. And it reminds you of Lord's Day 9. And I want to read Lord's Day 9 with you because when we're suffering, when you know, life is throwing everything it can at us and all of our enemies are attacking us in different levels and different ways, we look to God in his providence, in his power, in his sovereignty. What do you believe, Lord's Day 9? What do you believe when you say, I believe in God, the Father Almighty, creator of heaven and earth, that the eternal Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who out of nothing created heaven and earth and all that is in them, and who still upholds and governs them by his eternal counsel and providence, is for the sake of Christ his Son, my God and my Father. In him I trust so completely as to have no doubt that he will provide me with all things necessary for body and soul, and will also turn to my good whatever adversity 
He sends me in this life of sorrow. He is able to do so as almighty God and willing also as a faithful father. Do you hear the echoes of Psalm 62 there? He is able to do so as almighty God. Power belongs to God and willing also as a faithful father. To you, O Lord, belongs steadfast love. And then verse 12, for you, the end of verse 12, for you will render to a man according to his work. And now we've just had a, a psalm which brought us a lot of comfort and points us to, to seek refuge in God. And then we get to the last line and maybe we're feeling a little uncomfortable for you will render to a man according to his work. God's going to pay back each person for what they have done. And we say, well, where do we stand on that? That seems a little threatening because I know a lot of things that I have done do not match up, do not stand before his righteous judgment. But brother and sister, for those who know God, for those who know God's salvation, for those who know God's righteousness in Christ, these are words of comfort as well. It is a comfort to us that judgment is coming. And today, we're one day, we're one week closer to the day when what we confess every Sunday will happen, that he will come again to judge the living and the dead. That is not a threat to God's children. That is a comfort because Jesus is coming to set everything right. Every wrong will be set right. Everything, everyone who loves sin celebrates pain and brokenness and hatred and betrayal and decay will be judged and will be banished from God's presence and from the earth. Everything and everyone that tries to hurt and destroy you right now will be wiped away. And that's a great comfort that God will destroy these malevolent forces of dark evil that assail us in so many different ways and different levels. But, but again, okay, we know that, but you will render to a man according to his work. Where does that leave me? I'm, I'm a sinner. Yes, brother and sister, you are, I am a sinner. But we are not just any type of sinner, are we? We are sinners washed in the blood of the Lamb. And as we look back through the psalm and we read it through the, 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 the prism of, of the life of the Lord Jesus on this earth, and we see that great son of David, that his entire life he was attacked and assailed by all the demonic forces of darkness and hell. He was driven to the very bottom of the abyss. He was hated by his own people. He was betrayed and abandoned by his closest friends. He was stripped of all his possessions, even his clothing. When our Lord Jesus Christ died on the cross, he literally had nothing. No people, no things. And even in the worst of that darkness of hell, he held unto God. And unto the word of God. And he, even in his greatest suffering, he still cried out, My God, my God. Jesus 
walked the way of the cross. It is a way that, that goes through unspeakable suffering. But it doesn't stay there, does it? We know where it goes. It is the way of the cross is the way that leads through suffering to salvation and glory. And that is the way that Jesus calls us today to walk along. He calls you to take up your cross and to follow him, to build your life on this solid foundation that every promise of God is yes and amen in Jesus Christ, and that though the waves crash against you and crash over you, you will cling to the rock of ages. You will cling to Christ. You will stand firm on the promises of the Word of God. And in all your weakness, in His strength, you can fight the good fight. And you can run the race. And you can say together with the Apostle Paul, Henceforth, there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day. And not only to me, but also to all who have loved his appearing. Amen.